Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 141 of the coronavirus crisis, a giant rally on Wall Street as hopes for a vaccine take a big step forward. Then a huge rally on Wall Street to start the week. Breakout. This is a very exciting data. That gives you the instant immunity if this gets approved. And breakthroughs. Tonight, one of the people who just tested a coronavirus vaccine tells us how he felt as we discuss the risks and the path forward. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And it is good to have you with us on this Monday night after a 900-point rally in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Let's give you our first look now at futures this evening. Early, of course, right now, though, they are slightly higher all across the board. It follows a strong rally as investors were encouraged by positive news on the vaccine front. More on that in just a moment. The Dow rising, as we said, more than 900 points. The S&P 500 up more than 3%. All 11 S&P sectors higher on the day, but energy, industrials, and financials, the clear standouts today. Well, we said the big market driver of the day was a biotech breakthrough from Moderna. That company revealing positive test results in phase one of a vaccine trial. The CEO was on this network this morning. This is a very exciting data. It's still interim data, so the phase one is still ongoing. In the phase three, we will monitor neutralizing antibody, of course, but what we'll monitor is efficacy. This would be a placebo control study, like our phase two is going to be placebo control, to see people that get the vaccination versus people who get a placebo. Healthy young adults are not first in line. Healthcare workers are. Elderly with comorbidities are. So, uh, we're going to go basically by waves of people for vaccination. Let's get right to Dr. Scott Gottlieb now. He is the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you. A lot to get to. But let's begin with this news today from Moderna. How promising is it? Well, it's certainly encouraging. Uh, they looked at 45 patients. They had data on 45 patients and three different doses of the vaccine they studied. And all of the patients, they were able to develop antibodies and in eight of the patients that they evaluated, those were neutralizing antibodies, mean, meaning that they're antibodies that will actually target the virus itself and neutralize it. In the other patients, we don't yet have data on whether or not those antibodies are neutralizing antibodies. We just know that they bound the virus. But it's certainly encouraging data. And we also know that they are zeroing in on a dose as well. The 250 microgram dose that they tested seems to have produced too many fevers in patients. They seem to have abandoned that dose. Um, based on what they said early this morning to Meg Terrell on, on um, morning show on CNBC. And it appears that the 25 microgram dose that they tested as well didn't produce as robust a response. They don't appear to be taking that forward. So now they're taking forward their 100 microgram dose and now a new 50 microgram dose. And so there's, they're narrowing in on what the proper dose of this vaccine should be as well. And that's encouraging also. What are the critical next steps that we have to keep our eye on now? We know in the past, phase one doesn't always mean that this has a positive ending. Right. This is still very early. We don't know whether or not this is going to provide protective immunity. We don't know what the durability of the immunity is. And we certainly don't know the safety profile of the product. 
Um, some critical next steps are figuring out what the dose is. So they have to do some phase two work, probably multiple phase two studies to figure out what the right dose is of this vaccine. And then there's a lot of complexity in going from manufacturing a vaccine for a clinical trial to doing large-scale manufacturing that would be required for commercialization of a product. A lot of things can go wrong. There's a lot of complexity as you switch over to commercial-scale manufacturing. That's one of the hardest things to do in the vaccine business. And so, so they haven't even begun to do that yet. And so there's a lot of things left that they need to traverse here. But the next critical step for them will be conducting phase two studies to try to figure out what the optimal dose is and also turning over the card on whether or not the vaccine is consistently producing neutralizing antibodies, which would imply that it's conferring some level of immunity. How do we get to the point where we know how long the antibodies actually last, though we know they are being produced? Well, it's probably going to require two doses. Most of the vaccines that are being developed will will probably require two doses to get a sufficient amount of antibodies to be protective. And it's probably going to be the case that these antibodies won't be protective for many years. This might be an annual um, injection that we get, like the flu vaccine, where you go every year and you get a vaccine for the flu and you get a vaccine for coronavirus. There are some vaccines in development, like the one that J&J is working on and the one that AstraZeneca just uh, partnered on that use an adenoviral vector approach that may elicit cell-based immunity that may be longer lasting. But these mRNA vaccines may require more frequent dosing, annual vaccines, um, or something maybe a little less frequent than that. But I suspect it could be an annual vaccine. Same with the vaccine being developed by Sanofi, which is a protein va- uh, vaccine approach. So there's multiple different kinds of approaches being taken. Different vaccines are going to have pros and cons with them. What about the ability to ramp and really get to scale. We're talking, the company was talking 100 million doses a year, if not more than that. Is that realistic? Well, that's the hard part. Um, you know, there's a lot of complexity right now in taking this through development and making sure you can demonstrate that it's safe and effective in large-scale clinical trials and conducting those trials is complex. But being able to um, make the vaccine in a way that it can be manufactured at scale, so engineer the vaccine in a way that it can be manufactured at these very large scales that are needed, is highly complex. And there's been a lot of problems with that in the past. In 2009 with H1N1, as we went from the experimental doses of the vaccine into large-scale commercialization with that vaccine, I was involved with this at the time, um, we weren't getting the same yield that we thought we would be getting, and we ended up getting actually less vaccine stock, less vaccine antigen, and that set us back a couple of months. And so producing the vaccines in a way where you're getting a sufficient yield to produce the doses that you think you're going to need That's highly complex, and making that transition isn't easy, Um, and you need a company that has experience in that. In this case, Moderna has partnered with a contract manufacturer by the name of Lanza to do some of that work, Um, and hopefully they're developing this vaccine with an eye towards what can be produced at scale. There is another very big story uh, developing tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, and that is a revelation that the president has been taking hydroxychloroquine and zinc. He said he's been taking it for about a, a year and a half. What's your reaction to that? Well, I didn't hear you said he was taking it for a year. A A week week and a half. half. Excuse me, I misspoke. Right, right, right. Well, look, I mean, early on in the course of this epidemic, I know some doctors were taking it off-label prophylactically. Most physicians that I know have pulled away from doing that. I don't know that people are taking it prophylactically anymore, in large measure because the data that's accrued Um, hasn't really demonstrated that the drug is having a robust treatment effect or that it's preventing people from getting infected. A lot of doctors in Italy were anecdotally taking 
um, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in combination, and they were still getting infected. And so there just hasn't been good data to suggest that there's a treatment effect here or that these drugs in combination can prevent the infection. I would say that I would hope that the president's in a protective bubble where they're testing people who are in contact with him and where he's being monitored closely enough um, that he wouldn't be at high risk of contracting COVID, and therefore the utility of taking any kind of prophylactic drug would probably be very low in a situation like that. He's probably at low risk. But, you know, I'll leave the judgment about what he's taking and why to him and his physician. How surprised, though, were you when you first heard this news? I think we were all somewhat stunned by the revelation. Well, look, I was surprised insofar as I think the president is very well protected. I know people who are visiting with the president have to get tested before they visit with him. White House staff is being tested on a regular basis, and that's been in the public domain, so we know that. Um, and, you know, they're practicing good social distancing around the president. And so he's a, he should be at very low risk. And so even if there was a drug that was effective at preventing infection, um, which there isn't one that's been demonstrated safe and effective for that purpose. But even if there was, I would hope that the president wouldn't be an optimal candidate for that just because he's being protected very well. I want to believe that the president's being protected, that he's in a protective bubble, and that people who are infected aren't going to come into contact with the president of the United States. For sure. We're all, we're all obviously hoping that. Dr. Gottlieb, as we normally do, I'm going to ask you to stand by uh, for a few moments, want to get to another big story tonight. Big concerns this evening and questions around the accuracy of Abbott Labs testing for COVID-19. CNBC's farmer reporter Meg Terrell is with us tonight with Dr. John Hackett. He is the VP of Infectious Disease Agno Diagnostics at Abbott Labs. Meg? You know, a, a lot of questions from the last week when we saw a study from NYU suggesting a potential high false negative rate with the ID now, and then the FDA issuing that guidance document saying also we could see the risk of false negative uh, results and that a negative uh, should be confirmed with another test. Uh, just speak to kind of what you're seeing about those and whether there is a higher risk of getting a false negative with the ID now than other tests. Hi, Meg. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. First, I'd like to put this in perspective. ID Now is a remarkable diagnostic tool that is clearly helping to pre prevent and, and slow down the spread of this pandemic. It is very effective. To put it in perspective, there's been 1.5 million of these tests run, and 15 false negatives have been reported to either Abbott and, and the FDA. So the NYU study is an absolute outlier, fundamentally different than data that's been generated in any other studies related to the IDNOW platform, and vastly different than what our customers' feedback is on the performance of the test. But we have large customers, such as CVS, that are seeing positive rates at or, at or slightly above the local infection rate. So the test is definitely performing in, a, in a, a, a very solid manner. Well, still, the FDA issued that guidance last week uh, about the ID now testing. There is that risk of false negatives. To what do you attribute uh, the FDA's action there? So this is, is, is prudent, and we've been working with the FDA actually even before launch of the ID now platform uh, very closely. And, you know, their guidance of recommending from a medical perspective that if you have an individual who has symptoms 
of COVID, the signs and symptoms, um, that if the test is, is negative, uh, that it should be tested with an alternative platform. Again, that's prudent. You really need to take the clinical picture in combination with the diagnostics. And that would hold true for other types of testing and other, other diseases as well. Does that guidance, and you know, Abbott saying in its statement last week too, that if a patient is given a negative result, but that doesn't match up with their symptoms, that uh, they should be tested with another test. We know that the ID now is used at a lot of the, the major testing sites, like for CVS and Walgreens for, for drive-through testing. Uh, but does that idea that if somebody has clinical symptoms uh, that a doctor might be observing, um, does that perhaps make this test not so suitable for those settings? It's, it's absolutely suitable for those settings, and it, it's functioning well in those settings is as i said i mean based on the feedback we have from these sites that they are seeing uh positive rates that are at, at or above uh the local infection rates so it certainly uh, you know it appears to be working as it should i will say that uh there also was a study published or, or a study that was discussed last week from dr poe too at uh everett clinic in washington where he looked at this test and it was it had 91 percent sensitivity and 100% specificity. So the, again, coming back to the NYU study, there are some fundamental questions around this study uh, that are very concerning. We actually, some of my colleagues uh, called the uh, researchers at NYU to discuss the study. And you know, it raised a number of, 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 of concerns. First, in terms of the uh, patient population that was monitored using it. Um, and, you know, questions that really weren't answered in terms of how long from the onset of symptoms to the point where uh, the test was or the individual was sampled and, and then being tested. And, you know, a lot of these questions weren't answered. They acknowledged that there were, um, you know, that, that there were limitations to their study, that it wasn't a controlled clinical study. And I will say, when you look carefully at the data, what's interesting is that the the proportion of what they purport their uh, comparator test was over 1,400 patients had CT values that were 38 or greater, meaning extremely low levels of virus. And yet the 31 specimens on the dry swabs that they looked at with ID now, 45% of those were in that 38 CT or more level. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? This is really concerning in terms of the population. It certainly doesn't appear to reflect their population based on their own numbers in their study. So definitely some concerns well, around Mendez. how this study was done. Certainly, and we appreciate you joining us tonight to discuss it, and we hope you'll come back and, and talk with us more about testing in general, which is so important. Thanks for being here. Scott, back Absolutely. To you. Thank you. All right. Meg, uh, we appreciate it. Dr. Hackett, our thanks to you as well. Let's bring back in uh, Dr. Gottlieb once more. Dr. Gottlieb, how, how should we feel about this, this Abbott ID Now test? Do you have confidence in it tonight? I do. This is a very good platform, but like a lot of other testing platforms, we need to make sure that it's used appropriately. This is a platform that's best suited for the clinical setting in a doctor's office where patients might be presenting with symptoms of coronavirus, and the doctor uses this to get a very quick result, but if the test shows a negative result and the doctor still has an index of suspicion that the patient might have coronavirus, in that setting, they're going to send off a confirmatory test. They're going to send off an overnight test, a PCR-based test, just to make sure that it's not a false negative. 
We use this test for flu in this way. We use it for strep throat. So it's a very good point of care test in the hands of a provider who might have an index of suspicion and send off a confirmatory test. What it's not good for is using as a screening tool for an asymptomatic population because there is a, a rate of false negative results here where patients might have COVID. They might just be asymptomatic and you might get a negative result with this test. But in an asymptomatic population, in a general screening tool, if that person has a negative result, you're not going to test them again. And so that every platform needs to be used appropriately and in the hands of a provider used appropriately. This is a very good platform. Dr. Hackett, though, was suggesting that it was OK to use this test in a CVS like or likewise a setting. It sounds like you would disagree with that, that you wouldn't advise consumers necessarily to go to a drugstore and have this test done. Not necessarily. I think the people who should be getting tested with this platform are people who are presenting with symptoms or might have been exposed to the virus where there's an index of suspicion that they might have coronavirus. And therefore, if you get a negative result, you might follow up the test with a confirmatory test, depending on what the clinical circumstances are. What I wouldn't use this test for is just screening a random population of healthy people to see if coronavirus is silently spreading in the population and there's some asymptomatic people. So frankly, I wouldn't use this as a screening tool um, for people who are just presenting, for example, for a meeting um, and trying to see if someone could be positive but not have any symptoms. For that, you want a test that's more sensitive. Um, and the Cephe gene expert is a point-of-care diagnostic. It takes a little longer to run that test, but it's a more sensitive test, and that's probably better suited for screening asymptomatic people who wouldn't be getting screened otherwise, but for the circumstances that you want to rule them out for having coronavirus for, you know, admitting them into some complex like the White House or, you know, as a return to work tool or something like that. We've discussed vaccines tonight and, and the race for one. We've now discussed testing. Where do we stand, though, on therapeutics? What's the latest? Still making progress. I mean, remdesivir, we've talked about many times. I think the antibody drugs that are being worked on by four biotechnologies, and now there's a fifth entrant, but they're, they're much further behind, Sorrento. But the four companies, Vir Biotechnology, Lilly, um, Amgen, and Regeneron, are continuing to make progress. They say they'll be in the clinic this summer. And I believe one or more of those drugs could be available at some point this fall. Probably not early fall, but at some point this fall, we could have one of those therapeutic antibodies available. And that could be used both as a prophylaxis to prevent infection, um, as well as a treatment in early infection. And I think the combination of one or more of those antibody drugs with remdesivir does give us a good combination. Okay, I'll ask you to stay with me once more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and find out what it feels like to get that Moderna virus vaccine, the one that sent the market soaring today. We have one of the few volunteers to receive the shots with us tonight. We'll talk the risks and the complications firsthand. It's just two minutes away. Welcome back on day 141 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus. New York City's mayor says he expects the city could be ready to open by the first half of June. Uber cutting another 3,000 jobs less than two weeks after eliminating 3,700. The ride-sharing company is also closing 45 offices around the world. An Oregon judge has thrown out that state's virus restrictions, saying the governor didn't seek legislative approval to extend the order. The governor will seek an emergency review from that state's Supreme Court. More now on today's top story. Moderna's successful phase one trial of a COVID-19 vaccine. Let's bring back in Meg Terrell. She is standing by tonight 
with a volunteer who has gotten the shots, Ian Hayden. Meg, take it away. Scott, thanks so much. And Ian Hayden, thank you for being with us tonight. You're one of the first 45 people in the world to have received what could be a coronavirus vaccine. We have to say thank you to you for being willing to volunteer for a trial like this with so many unknowns. Tell us how you heard about the trial and, and why you wanted to volunteer. Yeah, I, I learned about the study initially from a coworker um, who shared a form where I could sign up and express interest. Um, and, and my reason for volunteering is pretty simple. It's just I'm, I'm fortunate to be in good health. I happen to live in a city where one of these early trials is taking place. And this seemed like an obvious way I could step up and, and help out in a small way in this time of crisis. Were you scared at all to undertake something that was so unknown? I mean, a new technology, Moderna's technology, a brand new virus. Was it scary? You know, no, I, I haven't been scared. I haven't been worried. I suppose if, if you are the worried type, you're not the kind of person who's going to sign up for a phase one study. Um, but, you know, I don't think I'm taking on a huge amount of risk here. It, it doesn't feel like I'm stepping in front of a train or anything like that. You know, the technology has been used uh, in clinical trials for other diseases before. Of course, there are risks to a clinical trial like this, just like any clinical trial. But if people aren't willing to take on those small risks, then we're never going to get to a vaccine. Right. Well, tell us about your experience. We understand you received the injection with the first dose on April 8th, and then 28 days later, you received a second dose. What did it feel like? Was it just like any other shot? What was your experience? It really was. Yeah, the injection itself was quite unremarkable. Um, if I'd had my eyes closed, I wouldn't have known that it happened. Um, I'm a bit afraid of needles, so I was just as nervous about getting the blood work done as I was for the injection. Um, but it, it was fine. Um, I had a bit of arm pain after the first injection, pretty typical of, of any vaccination, really. Um, after the second dose, I did feel a little crummy the day after, um, but that passed uh, after about 24 hours. And, and overall, I felt during this trial, just like I did before this whole experience started, which is to say, uh, fortunate to be, to be in good health. What was it like for you seeing the results come out from Moderna this morning? And had you had any of your own results communicated to you? Yeah, that was interesting. Um, you know, as part of the study plan, plan, I think it's pretty routine. Participants are not told any of the data ahead of anyone else. So I actually learned about the results on Twitter. I learned about it through the corporate press release, like a lot of people with, with no warning. Um, you know, it's it's pretty strange to to read a corporate press release talking about data and know that you're you're the person behind that data. Um, so that was a bit of a trip for me. Yeah, I bet that would be pretty crazy. I know that you know eight of the patients that Moderna reported the neutralizing antibody results for. The, that's the data that is so important because it shows that those people were really creating the immune response that could potentially block the virus. Um, do you expect to learn your own results at any point to know whether you personally are generating those neutralizing antibodies? I, I hope to learn that. Um, it seemed from this press release that, that the participants all seroconverted. So I believe that I have antibodies. I don't know that they're the neutralizing antibodies that we're looking out for. Um, but like I said, I'm not going to learn any of that any sooner than anyone else. So we'll have to wait until the next press release from Moderna, um, from the regulators about what those look like. 
You know, you wrote a piece in the Boston Globe, uh, maybe it was a week ago, uh, saying that you would be open to a human challenge trial. Um, the concept of that being uh, to speed up getting the efficacy results that you would volunteer to be exposed to live virus. Uh, just tell us about, you know, whether anybody has approached you about this idea and, and why you'd be willing to take on that additional risk. Yeah. So I said I, I would be interested inter in doing something like that if conditions were right. So I'm not looking to rush into a human challenge study, the idea of exposing someone to the virus. Um, I, you know, I think it obviously uh, comes with risks, including the risk of death. So there are many conditions that would have to be right for me to seriously do something like that. So in my, in my op-ed, I outlined what those conditions would be. Those have to do with uh, FDA approval, they're signing off of the process, and a really clear sense that doing a human challenge trial really is going to speed up the results that get us closer to a vaccine. No one has approached me about, about doing a, a challenge study. It's my understanding that nobody is planning one at this point, although I have heard that the FDA is, is considering that option and is talking about it and is willing to work with others. Um, you know, challenge studies have been done before for other diseases, and this is such an extraordinary time. It does make sense to have those conversations now. You know, one of the other uh, things that people have talked about being necessary for a challenge trial is to have um, useful drugs to treat people um, if the virus does infect them. You know, our only real drug that's proven efficacy is remdesivir. From any of the news coverage you've seen of that, would that make you more comfortable uh, entering a challenge trial? It's certainly better than nothing. Um, but, you know, my, my thoughts on the risk to myself personally have more to do with the fact that I'm, I'm younger, I'm 29, I'm, I'm right in that sweet spot where it seems like if I do catch COVID, um, it probably isn't going to kill me, it would, you know, sicken me and, and I would probably fully recover. Um, so that gives me hope. You know, that has a, obviously that is going to play a factor into how you would do a human challenge study. You would probably need to exclude the elderly. You would need to exclude people who are most likely to die from infection. And that, of course, is going to limit the efficacy of that or li limit, you know, what a human challenge study is going to tell you at the end of the day. So there are compromises there that would have to be struck. As well, this is Scott. I, I'm, your level of bravery is, is uh, absolutely remarkable. Um, you're quite modest, too, about uh, your efforts here. I'm just wondering if this turns out to be the one, if this vaccine turns out to be the thing that saves millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions of lives in the future, how you will feel knowing that you played such an integral role in helping that happen? Yeah, the way I look at it, Scott, really is that it's an integral role, but it's a small role. I'm one of 45 people in this trial. This just happens to be the first. There will be many trials. And, you know, I hope this is the one. But in a bigger sense, I hope that there's more than one, right? The world needs a vaccine. It needs multiple vaccines. And getting to a successful vaccine, one that is safe, one that is effective, is never the result of any one person. It's not just the volunteers in the study. It's the clinicians who conduct it. It's the researchers who developed this coronavirus vaccine candidate, but also the researchers who spent their entire lives researching coronaviruses, researching the proteins and the mRNA technology going into this. So it really is a team of thousands of people, and, and hopefully that team can get over this finish line as soon as possible. Well, we're grateful for all you're doing. I, I know I speak on behalf of everybody who's watching and or listening right now. Ian Hayden, I appreciate it so much. Meg, thanks to you, uh, as always. I'll bring Dr. Gottlieb uh, back in. 
Dr. Gottlieb, when you when you hear a story like Ian's, um, how does it make you feel? Well, look, there's a lot of people out there who um, take some risk entering these clinical trials, and it's essential to the scientific discovery process. There's going to be many more people who enter these clinical trials until these products are ultimately brought to market. The clinical trials for these vaccines are going to involve tens of thousands of patients. It was a nice detail that Meg elicited about how he found out about the results from a press release. And one point of clarification, um, you probably wouldn't enroll anyone who's already been vaccinated with an experimental product in a subsequent clinical trial. So, in fact, he wouldn't be eligible for some of the challenge studies if, in fact, those went forward. But uh, he was certainly brave to enroll in this this vaccine trial because there was a lot of uncertainties at the outset of this, and there still are a lot of uncertainties. It's amazing, though, that sort of the nameless and the faceless, other than, other than an appearance on a television program, we never generally know who ends up being responsible in these groups for a vaccine, uh, for any illness, for that matter. Yeah, it was a nice interview. And, um, you know, there's going to be thousands of people behind him. He's right. But uh, it's always difficult to be the first. Um, these early stage trials uh, are difficult to enroll sometimes because you don't have a lot of information about the products. And so the people who step forward to do this are exceedingly important to the scientific discovery process. Appreciate it very much. We'll talk to you tomorrow night. That's Dr. Gottlieb joining us. CBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. Here's what else is coming up on this show tonight. I also have been encouraging major sports teams to plan reopening without fans. Are the big leagues ready to return? And if so, how will they do it safely? Plus, how the world of sports sponsorship will change with no fans in the stands. And you might not be a pro, but your workout is about to change. Before the break, the United States on day 141 of this global pandemic. basketball, baseball, football, whoever can reopen. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says, play ball. He wants to bring sports back, but there's a catch. Plus, stocks surging today with the Dow and S&P having their strongest day in more than a month. The Bulls take charge on Wall Street. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. Following a strong rally on Wall Street, let's get you checked. On futures right now, after what we said was a very big day, futures pretty much flat, still modestly green across the board. Today, positive news on the vaccine front helped lift stocks. The Dow rising more than 900 points. The S&P 500 gaining 3%, a nearly 13% gain in Boeing leading the way on the Dow today. Strong gains in Raytheon and Dow Inc. also helping out. You heard New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo urging the big leagues to move on their paths forward and play ball. I also have been encouraging major sports teams to plan reopenings uh, without fans, but the games could be televised. New York State will help those major sports franchises to do just that. Uh, Hockey, basketball, baseball, football, whoever can reopen. We're a ready, willing, and able partner. 
That's the governor of New York. John Tatum is the CEO of Genesco Sports Enterprises. He joins us live tonight. John, it's good to see you. It certainly sounds from Governor Cuomo that we could have some games coming up. Does this feel like to you that we finally are approaching a point where we start playing? Oh, absolutely, Scott. And thank you for having me tonight. Uh, I think really what was driving the Dow up almost a thousand points was uh, live sports this past week uh, with UFC and uh, and also uh, the the NASCAR race yesterday at Darlington uh, was a a tremendous success. So I'm encouraged that not only did Governor Cuomo, uh, but also uh, Governor Newsom had some positive comments today about sports returning in California uh, after the 1st of June. Um, They're not quite as good as the governor in Texas, who's ready to have fans in the stands, but they're coming around. So uh, we'll see. We'll give it some time. What about sports marketing? What's happened to sports marketing as we've been sitting on the sidelines, so to speak? Well, uh, a lot of companies, major corporations, brands, obviously, have, have taken this opportunity to pause, uh, to reevaluate, reexamine their uh, investments, uh, what sports they're investing in, and within those sports, what assets are they uh, are they getting in return? So uh, you need to look at a scenario whether it's uh, you know in stadium signage, uh, you know without fans in the stands, is that valuable? Maybe uh, you need field level signage uh, or hospitality assets is valuable uh, if you can't have uh, fans in the stands or social gatherings. So, you know, there's a a little bit of of everybody we've been doing actually more work the past uh, 10 weeks on strategy, uh, evaluation, uh, renegotiation in some cases. uh, And in some cases, we move forward with deals that were already in place prior to uh, 311. Interesting. You mentioned the word, um, you know, renegotiation. I I was going to ask you what What's happening with rates? You know, in some respects, you'd say, well, you would expect rates from sponsors and and marketing partners to drop. But then when they do begin to play these games, you may not have fans in the stands, but you're certainly going to have big audiences on TV. John, we know that. Absolutely. I I think the ratings from yesterday's NASCAR race uh, proved that out in Darlington. Uh, There was not anybody in the stands. Uh, You know, Jeff Gordon and uh, was at his house uh, broadcasting the game. So, you know, it was a different look and feel. But obviously people are are dying to be connected and be connected to something live happening outside of their particular home. Um, I think uh, the value of sports properties is uh, is is determined by uh, one the competitive landscape. So is is my client uh, in the airline business uh, are their competitors spending or not? And then within that, um, you look at uh, changes in uh, things like we talked about in terms of camera visible signage versus signage at the top of the stadium. Uh, you look at uh, potentially uh, suites are uh, are more valuable than uh, maybe general admission uh, uh, because you can protect the environment a little more. Um, so, you know, there's a shift. Uh, there's not as many experiential uh, marketing assets that have value if there are no fans to sample and to uh, uh, product sample and, and to data capture, et cetera, and interact with. So it's just a it's not necessarily a devaluation or, or maybe an increase. It's just a, a, a reallocation of the portfolio. I was going to ask you, do, you, do you find that your sponsors, I mean, you're working with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, obviously. Are they diverting dollars that would normally be spent on sports 
and putting them more towards virus-related concerns? And can they so easily move them back to the sports landscape once the games actually do begin? Well, there are some uh, changes from a traditional sponsorship. You know, the draft happened uh, uh, this past uh, April, and and uh, you did a great job with your fellow Redskins uh, buddy Matthew McConaughey on the schedule release show. And where those would be live events uh, in the past, they made donations to charity or they honored frontline workers instead of you know cutting new TV spots. But uh, you know, for the most part, uh, we know that. Sports are going to come back, and maybe they'll come back in a a 25% capacity. Maybe they'll come back in a 50% capacity. But once we get uh, a vaccine or certainly a proven uh, uh, therapeutic or or a proven uh, antiviral, um, you know, we're going to be back to full full steam ahead. Um, So there are changes in what we look at. Um, and companies are evaluating, do we scale back marketing because, uh, you know, we want to make uh, uh, contributions to our front line that's out there delivering the beer mm-hmm. on those Anheuser-Busch trucks and delivering Pepsi and Tostitos and keeping those shelves. Campbell Soup is another client of ours, and they've, they've had a great uh, uh, past couple of quarters. But, um, you know, I, th- I think at a certain point, Scott, uh, we will get back to a normal um, it'll be a different normal than pre-311, uh, but with change comes opportunity. And, uh, you know, for example, we have a lot of healthcare clients. Um, you know, we represent Cigna, uh, which is the official healthcare partner of the NFL. We also represent about a dozen uh, hospital and, and healthcare clients. So if you ever watch a New Orleans Saints game and you see Oshner uh, behind uh yeah, well, uh, healthcare is a good business, uh, and, uh, and and we're fortunate that we're in sports. We uh, we'll check in with you down the road, John. I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. That's John Tatum, Genesco Thank Sports you. tonight. All right, you be well. There is more ahead tonight. What's your workout going to look like next tonight? How gyms are getting ready for a big lift? Social distancing before the break. Photos from around the world on the 141st day of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. When gyms reopen, people are likely to see some big changes. Daniel Sullivan is CEO and co-owner of CrossFit The Rack in Paramus, New Jersey, not all that far from here. And he's working on a plan now. Daniel, good evening. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this plan uh, of yours. Once you're uh, able to reopen, what are you going to do? So we've been trying to follow basically what the rest of the country has shown us, or at least the parts of the country that have opened as far as how they're sort of navigating the, the guidelines and so forth. So right now we anticipate uh, smaller than usual class sizes. So we're going to have to put some restrictions on how many people can likely be in the room at a given time. So we've already begun to map out, um, give or take 12 by 12 foot spaces that people can utilize uh, as their sort of workspace. Um, we anticipate filling that area 
with the equipment they will need for that day's workout ahead of time. So when they walk in the room, there won't be a lot of people meandering around trying to find what they need. We'll have already laid it out for them. Uh, we'll provide them with cleaning supplies so that they can spend some time before the class and after the given class sort of policing their area and making sure that it's ready for the next group. Uh, we are going to shorten class times a little bit so that it'll avoid overlap between different groups. And that'll allow us also time to clean additionally any of the equipment that has or will be used uh, by subsequent class participants. We anticipate closing for several hours during a given day just so that we can do a comprehensive sort of top to bottom cleaning. And then we also anticipate being closed at least one day a week in order to, again, do a top to bottom cleaning and make sure that you know, we've addressed everything that needs to be addressed in terms of keeping things clean. So that's sort of the immediate plan. Um, we also have looked into possibly taking people's temperatures upon arrival, uh, not letting people in the room or in the gym until their designated class time. So that'll be reservation based. And then we're looking at, you know, also possibly asking people to fill out a sort of brief questionnaire or something that indicates whether they've had any reason to think they've been exposed or around anybody who's either had the coronavirus mm -hmm. or that they might for some reason be susceptible right. to carrying. Are you so, all class based or are you uh, do you allow just individual people to come in and work out and use your equipment? So we have up until recently kind of done a hybrid. So we've done classes predominantly. We offer an open gym experience where people could come in and simply make use of some of the equipment we have that a lot of gyms don't have, like climbing ropes and things of that nature. Um, and then we also offer personal training and nutrition coaching. So we kind of run the gamut. We have a kid's class or a teen's class as well. Um, so we do have a couple different services, but our bread and butter is typically our class-based. We'll be following scenario. your story. We, uh, we wish you well. We'll be watching out to see how things go. Dan Sullivan, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Our salute to restaurants across the country, plus how one doctor's office is working to make waiting rooms and exam rooms safer for patients. As you know, the entire healthcare system has been hit hard by the pandemic. Even your local doctor's office is feeling the pain. Here's Sean Baxt of Delaware Back Pain in his own words. So we have started to see a revenue drop. We know the real revenue drop is at the horizon. In healthcare, we generate the charges today, but there's sometimes anywhere from a couple weeks to several months lag before we receive our payment. We may not be seeing the impact for the next six months. I would say uh, we've seen as much as a 75% reduction in patient volume. Going into this, we had 65 employees. So far, we've seen uh, 20 voluntary decreases in salary. We had uh, seven temporary layoffs or furloughs uh, who were looking forward to bringing back now that we've received our uh, PPP funds. Uh, the more intangible has been the emotional toll on our staff. We've had some staff members that have had breakdowns from time to time. And on a personal level, my father, as the founding physician, senior partner, and I'm the chief operating officer, he's at putting himself in harm's way every day. And even though I'm obviously concerned about him, my concern is much greater than that. We need to focus on what it's going to take to keep our doors open, to keep all of our facilities safe, and to continue being able to effectively treat patients and serve this community. Now that was Sean Baxt in his own words tonight. Well, each night, as you know, we're recognizing restaurants across the country as they try to keep cooking. Tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can even send a picture too. tonight. We recognize Sushi Bang Bang in Boynton Beach, Florida. Sweet Tomatoes Pizza in Sandwich, Massachusetts. Taco John's in Independence, Missouri. 
Rustic Road Brewery in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the Shoe Fly Public House in Indianapolis, Indiana. We appreciate all that you all are doing. On day 141 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. President Trump says he's been taking the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine for about a week and a half to prevent infection, despite it being unproven to work and an FDA warning about that drug. Moderna reports positive results in an early stage trial for its vaccine. That sent the Dow soaring, rising more than 900 points today. You can go to CNBC.com all night long for up to the minute information on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange and 7 p.m. for markets in turmoil. I will see you tomorrow at noon on the Halftime Report. That does it for us and for all of us here at CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner. Stay safe. Shark Tank is next.